Welcome to North Coast Church, and thank you for joining us for today's message. Pastor Chris Brown is going to be continuing in our series, Life or Death, on the book of John. To prepare for today's message, we encourage you, download our message notes or utilize our North Coast Church app. There you can fill out a connection card and put in your prayer request. Now let's join Pastor Chris Brown for today's message. The mind is a funny thing, isn't it? what it chooses to hold on to, what it chooses to remember, what it chooses to galvanize one event or one thing to another. (laughs) The old man will constantly find himself shaking his head and chuckling, just remembering things that only eyewitnesses would have picked up. Small little insignificant details to many of us, but, but little details that seem to sum up entire stories, entire lives. It's rare that he finds himself sitting in someone's home looking at the thatched roof without, without remembering the day one was torn open. How many times he's been served a plate of a few small fish and, and pieces of bread without getting a little Jesus grin on his face. Burning coals on the seashore tend to do the same thing. Just a pile of burning coals. Bring back floods of memories they seem to encapsulate an entire day of, well, of life change. Or a water jar left unattended, sitting alone by itself. We'll find the wrinkled face once again just break out in a smile, a grin that's, that is unexplainable to those around him. Most that know him just know there's another day that just popped into his head. <laughs> She left her water jar and he shakes his head and chuckles. It's amazing. The things that were once a priority or agenda of our day that that now seem insignificant, the things in our past that used to once have a hold on us that now no longer do. It's what happens when you come to a real understanding, not what Jesus did, but who he truly is. It'll change you. Oh, it'll change you. And from time to time, just catching a glimpse here and there of a a lone water pot is all that John needs to remember life change. A city that's changed. Pastor TJ last week walked us through the beginning of her story. He left the last few verses and told me, if you want to jump on it, go ahead. There's so much more there. But man, did he do a great job of exposing her. But, but maybe more of what he did is he exposed Jesus. We, we saw in John chapter 4, Jesus had to go through Samaria, a place where most Jews would avoid. And then we find him talking to a Samaritan woman, which is breaking every cultural and spiritual and religious protocol. And then we find that incredible conversation that we saw last week. She's come to find water. He's offering her living water. He's offering her something that can quench what's really going on. Something where she doesn't have to thirst no more. You don't have to desire anymore. You don't have to wrestle with your discontentment anymore. You don't have to look for something else to fill or satisfy you anymore. And no more does she hear the pitch than she buys into it. Sir, I'll take it. And Jesus stops right there and says, no, let's talk to your husband. 
She goes, well, I'm, I'm not married. He goes, I know, you've been married five times and the guy you're currently sleeping with isn't your husband, which seems in the text to indicate it is somebody else's husband. Well, she tries to change the conversation to religion. Oh, I know you have a temple. We have a temple here where we worship. In other words, I know there's things in my life that I should probably go to church. I should probably be religious. I should probably find my answer there. And that's where Jesus flips the tables once again upside down on her and says, look, there's a day coming. In fact, it has now come where if you really want to walk with God, you gotta worship him in spirit and in truth. In fact, real worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. Oh, church, we're taking a deep dive at the end of the story of the woman at the well in John chapter four today. For all of you that are watching online, all of you that are listening in a group, watching in a group, driving in your car, you sped me up to 1.75 to try to make this shorter, good for you. We're all gonna get the same message in the word of God. But what we're gonna find out today is where can we have our moment at the well? Where do we lose our insignificance? Where do we lose the things that have control over us from our past and we now have control over them? Where does our life change? from the things that were most significant in our agenda, like going to find water for the day, to an encounter with a living God where we've forgotten the water pots because there's a new priority in our life. Oh, we're in John chapter four. Buckle up, this is gonna be quite a ride. And for those of you that have been struggling with, how do you find freedom from you? For those of you that have been struggling with guilt, and shame, and they're two different things, we'll get into it. For those of you that have been struggling with your past and it still has a hold on you, today is a day we find freedom if you choose to have your own encounter at your well with the same risen Jesus. Because it's not what he did, it's who he was. And the eyewitness John writes the account. So go ahead and pick up your Bible where we left off last week, John chapter four. In John chapter four, I'm gonna pick it up on verse 25 and then capture the rest of John. In John chapter four, 25, when Jesus says, you have to worship me in spirit and in truth, the woman said this, I know that the Messiah, the one called the Christ, Messiah is just an Old Testament Hebrew word, Christ, New Testament Greek word, same thing. I know that there's gonna be the chosen one, the son of God that one day will come. And when he comes, he can explain everything to us. Now, it's not said with a question mark, but I wonder if she's begging at this point. I wonder if this conversation already has stirred her. You know who I am, what I've done, who I've done, what's been done to me, where I've gone and how I've lived. I've tried to direct this to religion and you've directed me back to the truth about me and the truth about the one that's speaking to me in red letters. And I wonder if this is her way of begging the answer she's hoping for. I know one day the son of God will come and when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Because there's something in my life, in my heart, the more I spend time with Jesus, it's telling me, you're the one, right? You're the answer, Right? And I love the way he jumps on this. And Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. The amount of times over a hundred claims Jesus has in one book. He is God. He's the answer. 
Well, just then the disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman, but no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? See, the disciples realize how out of ordinary this is. Not only is it weird that Jesus took us in through Samaria, but it's weird now that he sent us into town to get food. We've gone, we've bought food. We've come out and you're talking with a woman and it's not just a woman, it's a Samaritan. TJ did a phenomenal job last week, not just of teaching this passage, but showing us that the Pharisees of that day, the scribes of that day, the rabbis of that day, and any really devout spiritual man had this this desire not to even be seen in inappropriate relationships. Every rabbi would have this thing of, we don't speak to women in public, let alone a Samaritan, a racial war that's going on with the S word. She's a female and she's part of the S word. And when the disciples come back and see this going on, all their spidey senses go off. Some of you women are like, I think I married a rabbi. He doesn't speak to me in public, doesn't speak to me much in private. He just kind of grunts a lot of time. And Jesus says, look, this is why I had to go through Samaria. But the disciples don't question Jesus. They just know this is wrong. Which, 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 by the way, before we jump into this text of finding our guilt and freedom freed, This is exactly what we need to do. If we're gonna be Christians, one who are like Christ, follow Christ, live like Christ, this is what we do to those who oppose us. This is what we do to those that are volatile and violently and those that are outspoken against what we hold dear, against what we're trying to provide and protect. This is what we do to the opposition. We go in love and we go to win. The Jews wouldn't do that. The disciples didn't do that. The disciples went into town and they brought back only food. That's gonna become really important in just a couple verses. And Jesus has shown, you know what? We're about winning people. And this is gonna be something he's about to invite us all into in this chapter. So leaving her water jar, The woman went back to town and she said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Circle, highlight, underline, told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? So they came out of the town and they made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. And Jesus said, I've got food to eat that you know nothing about. So the woman leaves her water jar, goes back to town and tells people, come see a man who knows who I really am. Come see a man who knows everything I've ever done. Now remember, she's gone to the well at noon. In countries then and in countries now where you don't have potable or flowing water in a community, you go and you get your water early in the morning and you go and you get water again in the evening. You get enough water in the morning to last you through the day. And when that's used up, someone usually goes in the evening and they get enough water for you and your household through the night. That's the way it works. To go at noon is just weird because when you're going again, just a few hours later in evening time, that messes it up. Can you wait 24 hours? You're usually gonna use that water in 12 hour span, not a 24 hour span. Plus noon is the heat of the day. So she's there to avoid the town because the town knows her past. The town knows her history. If she's had five husbands and the guy she's currently with isn't her husband, it means there's a lot of people in town who knows who she is and what she's done or, or God forbid, what's been done to her. It's why she's hiding. But the very thing she's hiding from is now the thing she goes and she exposes. Come meet a man who knows my story. 20 verses ago, her greatest fear 
is that someone would be at the well and know who she is. Because she met someone at the well who knows who she is, she now can share that story? Oh, people, there's a freedom that just happened here that we can't afford to miss today. And the disciples now back at the well say, Jesus, you need to eat some food. And he goes, I've, I've got food to eat that you know nothing about. Jesus goes, look, I'm so satisfied after this conversation. This is what I had to do. I'm so full right now because of what just happened here at the well. And the disciples don't understand. And they said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? There's a little Jewish saying that says, ah, four months more until the harvest. In other words, we don't have to do anything now. Time will tell. You can't rush the harvest. Hey, there's some stuff we could get busy with. Ah, four months until the harvest. You know what? Put it off. Put it off. We can do it tomorrow. There's a little saying that says there's really no urgency today. It's not four months until the harvest. Oh, but I tell you, open your eyes. Look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad and celebrate together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. I know it's weird. When Jesus starts talking farming terms, I tend to shut it down and go, I'm not quite sure. I did. I'm sure it meant something to the guy with the tractor then. I just don't quite get it. But what Jesus is saying, you got to see the picture. The woman goes in and tells her story. People start coming out to the fields. The disciples now at the well are trying to get Jesus to eat. And Jesus is seeing the people coming out to the fields. He goes, look, the fields are ripe for a harvest. Guys, you went into town and you brought back food. She went into town and she brought back people. Did you catch that? You're the disciples. You're my followers. You've experienced this life change, the miracles, the signs, and you went in and brought back happy meals. She went in with her past and brought back broken people. Tell me what's wrong with this picture. Do you not realize that things are ripe right now for the harvest? Oh, it's this incredible picture when you put these two together. I wonder if Jesus is waving his hand at the hundreds that are starting to come out from the city. That's what God's will is about. That, my friends, <laughs> is how we finish his work. Your water jar, what was important to you at the beginning of the story is gonna lose some significance. Your purpose for what you do in town is now gonna become eternal, not temporary. Your daily routines of food and business and work and school and play are gonna be intentional about eternal things. Oh, get your note sheets out, get ready to write. Let's break this down before we finish the last couple verses. This is an invitation to success and celebration. Oh, church online family, look at me. You have just been given an invitation in red letters to success and celebration in your life. Let's break it down. God's will for us is to have an impact on the lost. 
Don't you know that I'm doing the will of my father, the will of him who sent me and to finish the work? Christian, let me just ask you a question. If you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior and you know when you die, heaven's gonna be your home because he has forgiven you, not because your works, not because your good things, all of his work, simply your faith, then what are you still here for? Why are we still in a broken world? Why are we left here if Jesus already has our heart and soul and we know eternity starts forever in heaven to do his will and to finish his work? What is God's will for us to have an impact on the lost? Go back to verse four. This whole story started. Now Jesus had to go through Samaria. Can I remind you, Jesus doesn't had to do anything. I know that's terrible grammar. That's great theology. Jesus doesn't had to do anything. So anytime you get to the Bible and said, Jesus had to do, stop and go, why did he had to do? What did he had to do? He had to find a broken woman and let her know your past cannot just be forgiven. It can be freed. He had to go to a woman and say, you've got to stop trying to worship me spiritually if you're not going to bring me the truth. It's why your weekends in the edge service or on the online service, your worship, you've got these Jesus moments. And the moment you get back to your life, it seems to wear off. Why can't we carry a spiritual momentum with us through the week? Because we're trying to worship God spiritually, but not with the real truth. The moment she said, I will take what you have, living water spiritually, he goes, no. Let's talk about the truth. Let's talk about the one, two, three, four, and five and the current dude. Let's talk about that. Otherwise, you're gonna have a great prayer by the well. Otherwise, you're gonna go, man, I met the Messiah and he offered me living water and I prayed and I received it. And you walk back to your five plus one and guess what happens? It's gonna be robbed. There's no joy there. There's no contentment there. Why? Because you worship God spiritually. And he loves us too much to allow us to worship him spiritually. The time is coming. In fact, now it has come. You've got to worship him in truth. Because if he doesn't have the truth about you, he's not going to have you. And whatever spiritual moment you have with him, it's going to wear off the moment you come face to face with you. And he goes, let me invite you to this. God's will for us is to have a huge impact on this lost world around us. He had to redeem. He had to break free. He had to let her know your past is forgiven and your past is freed. And he had to let her know, I'm gonna leave this town. Do not try to worship me spiritually, religiously, without the truth about you. I want you to know that I know the truth about you and you are loved, you are sought after, you are what I had to do because you are really, really liked. And there's a purpose for you. And it'll change the water jar agenda you have in every day. And it'll change just coming back with food. It'll change the temporary to seeing things in an eternal way. This is what Jesus had to do. And then he goes, let me tell you the joy of that. See the harvest? And he gave us three things about obeying God's will. Obeying God's will brings about rewards brings about rewards. Go back to those verses there in red letters and write it down. Go back to the verses in verse 35. Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? But I tell you, open your eyes and look. The fields, they are ripe for the harvest. Your workplace, your schools, your neighborhood. People are broken. People are hurting. People are riddled with guilt and shame, just like this woman was 25 verses ago. It is ripe for them not to get religious. It is ripe for them not to have a spiritual moment, but to understand the truth about who they are and the truth about what this God wants to do in this life. Man, people are ready for this. Let me tell you three things that happen when you take this on as God's will for your life. 
When you realize I want to be part of, I was redeemed, so I want to redeem others. I want to save, so I want to be a part of saving others. I was set free so I could free others. Number one, even now the reaper draws his wages. Circle, highlight, underline. There's going to be rewards. There's going to be rewards. I think I've answered eight or nine emails from two weeks ago when I talked about the servants, all given certain gifts, talents, and abilities, but all different sizes according to their ability. And people are like, that doesn't sound like God. That doesn't sound fair. I think God treats us all fairly. And I'm like, God treats us all fairly, but not our definition of fairness. God gave each servant what they needed according to their ability. To one, he gave one bag of gold. To another guy, three bags of gold. To one, five bags of gold. And he goes, I can dish out according to their ability. You each are given different resources for what you do. We're the ones that weigh that as greater or less than. And God goes, no, you all have different positions to play. I've given you all equal opportunity. The resources may be different, but you all have equal opportunity. And then some of you were shocked to hear that heaven wasn't going to be a place of equality. Every place the Bible talks about heaven, it talks about ruling, reigning, crowns, and it talks about rewards and riches. This life is a resume for not just what we have in heaven, but for what we do in heaven. Remember when Jesus was asked about heaven two weeks ago? He said, I'm gonna reward each person by well done, good and faithful servant. Because you were faithful in this life doing this, I'm gonna put you in charge of this in heaven. We get responsibility in heaven. Jesus once again doubles down on it and goes, let me tell you, there are rewards for those who understand the purpose of this life. He goes, understanding, obeying God's will brings about rewards. He goes, even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now they harvest a crop for eternal life. Secondly, there's eternal consequences. There's eternal consequences. Has that ever dawned on you? That the vast majority of what you and I touch and work with and work for is so temporary. It's here for our 60, 70, 80, 90 years. But we're invited. We have an invitation to be successful in something that is eternal. What are you doing this week that 500 years from now, you are gonna be so grateful for and so glad you did? If we can start thinking that way, if we can truly see ourselves as eternal beings, and Jesus said, guys, you went into town and bought food you brought back food. She's bringing back people. You were focused on the temporary. She was focused on, I want people to see the God who just freed me. And she's able to tell her story to do that. Can you see how right this is? You and I are invited to share in changing the population of heaven. Eternity will forever be different because of the people in it, because of the role that he's inviting us to play in his kingdom. And then he says, that's why the reaper and the sower both are gonna share in the celebration. So that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. You're supposed to celebrate this. Huh. I tell you, I'm finding in my life, there's no greater joy in celebration than realizing what the kingdom of God is doing. Specifically for us, what North Coast Church is doing. And to realize, I get to play a role in that. It absolutely blows me away, this thing of what I get to celebrate. Let me just give you my week. Just, just this week, the things. I got this photo from Prescott. By the way, we say Prescott, Arizona. I gave a shout out to those of you in the Richardson's living room in Prescott. And I've gotten so many people go, mm -mm, it's Prescott, Prescott. 
And I'm like, well, then spell it differently. So we're giving a shout out to Prescott. Here's the living room. Here's the Richardsons. We got couples. Wave to yourself. There's a couple other couples that are joining. This is the guy that just said, you know what? I don't want to watch this by myself. I want to invite people. And every week, more and more people are showing up. Now his phone call is, well, what do we do? And we, we, we got too many for the house. And I'm like, mm, call Trent, online pastor. He'll work it out. He'll, he'll do something with you. We'll try to figure this out together. Let me tell you what happened after Prescott. A couple months ago, I was invited to do a little Q&A and a little thing with a bunch of our life groups up in Sacramento. So I figure I'm going to meet some people that are in life groups. This was Sacramento. Look how many people showed up saying, man, we're part of these Bible studies. We're part of these life groups. We're watching together with our friends. We're doing this. We're applying this. You want to know how stinking encouraging that is to see? This last week, I was down in Los Barrios, Mexico. Went down there to iron out some leadership stuff going on, to help out with some stuff, to see what's going on. Never been down there this time of year where so many people from Canada and Alaska and the Great White North are down there. I go in the summer where it's hot and I can fish. I took a photo of the back of the church service. For seven years, they've been using all of our messages, all of our life group material. Look what's happening down in Los Barrios. Is that stinking amazing? On Thursday night, we did a little Meet Chris and Amy Brown, Brownies with the Browns. They did it with chili and cornbread at East Cape Christian Fellowship. 53 people showed up just to sit with us, chili, cornbread, and do some Q&A because they've been watching us on a screen for about seven years now. We finished that service, and about an hour later, I get a little video sent to me. Last Sunday, there's baptisms at the Vista campus. Look what happened to the baptisms at the Vista campus. Oh, I don't know how that got in there. That was also something that happened down in Mexico. We can take that off the screen, Buck. Let me show you the baptisms of what happened. They moved it indoors because, well, look, everyone with the black shirt's getting baptized. They're going all the way down the side of the live auditorium. They get to the back wall, they curve, and then there's a line going outside the door. Outside the door. I'm watching this video over and over again. I'm like, what in the world is happening? We mentioned over 200 people had written down that they had made decisions just in the last three weeks here at North Coast Church. Over 80 of them stood forward and said, hey, we want to get baptized in front of our friends and family. The place after the service on the Vista campus, that's only one of our campuses. A giant celebration breaks out where people are just baptizing. There's hugs, there's cheers, there's worship going on because it's life change after life change after life change after life change. What in the world is going on? We live in a day and age that you can complain at and shake your head at, or we live in a day and age that I look at and go, this may be the best time ever to be a Christian. Man, are things ripe for the harvest. People are upset and frustrated at almost everything. They don't need religion. They don't need a spiritual service. They need the truth about their life and who they are to encounter a Christ, a Messiah, the Son of God. This week, I receive a letter from Don. 82-year-old widow woman, I think she lives up in Los Angeles, says, I got a son, I got five grandkids. I just want to write to you and tell you how much watching these services online mean to me. I was blown away that we have some small impact in you, Don, in your life and your journey. I got a couple page front and back from the Adams family up in Wisconsin. A mom saying, we listened to your messages, taking my girls to the public school teenagers in the morning. They've shushed me on several occasions because they're so intently listening to the teaching. As a mom, I gotta just tell you how amazing that is. She then talked about her own upbringing, her own run-in with some very bad cultic Christianity and the freedom that she's found in Christ. Man, I tell you people, 
you're going to forget your water pots. You're going to forget the purpose was just putting food on the table. You're going to be caught up and involved in why we're really here, this invitation that I've been saved to help save others. I've been redeemed to help redeem others. I've been set free so I can go into town and bring others back and go, you ought to meet a guy. First of all, just let me tell you who I used to be and who I am today. I was ashamed of it, 25 verses. I was running from it, but now I'm gonna lead with it because I encountered not what he did, but who he was. And he wanted the truth about me. Something I was ashamed to give or tell anyone. He wanted the truth about me. See, the irony is that it's our lives that keep us from sharing our lives, isn't it? Isn't it? The irony is it's our lives that keep us from sharing our lives. We have all these terrible thoughts about us, either how bad we were or who we were, afraid people will find out, or I don't have a great story, I don't have a great testimony, or I don't know enough, I don't. And it's our lives, our thoughts that keep us from sharing our lives. What did this woman go to town with? She went back to town, say, come meet a guy who knows everything about me, everything I've ever done. And somehow we got to get over our lives to be able to share our lives. Because that's why I'm left here. That's my role. That's what I'm supposed to do. You see, our past will be Satan's greatest weapon against us or God's most powerful tool for us. It's our past. Our past will be Satan's greatest weapon against us or God's most powerful tool for us. We do some incredible things around here, incredible programs, incredible events. I'm wearing the brand new Serve Your City shirts. Oh, it's coming up here in April. We're gonna do three weekends of it for online. You can go, we have online service projects for you to do. If you're not familiar with Serve Your City, you're gonna hear rumblings of it over the next month and a half. Oh my gosh, we shut down services for the weekend. We've been doing this now for, I don't know, 15, 16 years, something like that. We try to get 70% of our church out serving in a project that we made and we try to get the other 30% to do a project that they've come up with on their own. We're gonna be all over town meeting all kinds of people, not just Christian, but non-Christian. In fact, we love going to anti-Christian establishments and going, what can we do for your property, for your building, for whatever? We just love serving. We like crossing the lines that Jesus did. I don't care what race, I don't care what belief, I don't care what religion, I don't care what background you are. We're not here with signs of the protest. We're here with shovels and we're here with paintbrushes to go, how can we just help? How can we just love on you? How can we meet you at your well? How can we come care about you before we ever drop truth into your life? Because that's, that's what Jesus did to those groups that were unlovable, uncrossable, that opposed everything you hold dear and true. And we want you to be invited in that. But it's what we do, it's what we're known for as a church. We make a huge splash. We're gonna raise a couple hundred thousand dollars and do one and a half to two million dollars worth of work. But I tell you what this year is about, not you waiting around all year to get involved and serve your city. It's this. It's, it's us getting our lives to the point where we can share with those that know you. That's your mission field. That's your harvest that is ripe. How do you impact the people in your life? Well, I promise you, your past is gonna be Satan's greatest weapon against you or God's most powerful tool for you. Your past is gonna be what makes you feel guilt and shame. I told you there's a difference. Guilt is knowing that you've done bad. Guilt is knowing I went against something that I feel is bad, I think is bad, my moral compass, my theology, my ethics, I have guilt about that. But guilt tends to promote you to do better. 
Guilt tends to spur you on to go, okay, because of that, man, I got to do better than that. But given enough time, especially when it's hidden, it's like fungus in a cellar, it's going to grow. And guilt turns into shame. If guilt is knowing I've done bad, shame becomes knowing I am bad. If guilt says I try to do better, shame goes, I can't do better. I'm broken. Guilt says I broke a law or I broke something spiritually. Shame says, no, you're broken. And our past is constantly in either one of these two things. It's why every time you've tried to worship God spiritually, this little truth about you goes, oh, really? You're gonna raise those hands? Remember what those hands have done? Yep, yep. It's why this woman is broken. Sir, give me living water. And he goes, you don't have a chance. I'm not about to do something spiritual in your life until we talk about one, two, three, four, five, and you're six. Because here's why. You're gonna go back with this pretty cool feeling that you met Jesus and you're gonna bump into the truth about you. And I don't know, folks. I just don't know, church. I don't know if it's Satan. I don't think it's Satan. Satan isn't omniscient. He's not omnipotent. He's a created being. Satan is in one place at one time only. I think he's probably in the Middle East or Vegas. I don't know. I don't think it's Satan. It could be the work of Satan. It could be demonic. It could just be my own flesh, my own sin nature, my own brokenness. But something keeps telling me about who I am and what that means about you and what it means about me. So the moment I go to raise my hands, this little voice goes, oh, really? Remember what you did? Yeah. The moment I feel like I'm walking with God, it's like, what do people here knew about 1980 and 1991 and two? Yep. The moment I start to stand up and say something, there's this little voice that goes, oh, really, you? Remember who you are? And I don't know what it is that's used against me, but it's powerful. It makes me go to the well at noon. It makes me avoid the crowds. It makes me avoid real intimacy because I don't want people in to me see who I really am because I don't think I'm likable and lovable. So I'm pretty sure no one else is gonna find me likable and lovable because guilt has turned into shame in my life. So not dealing with our past is gonna rob us of our future. If we can't deal with this, it's gonna rob us of our future. Not dealing with my past also robs me of my present. I can't have freedom in Christ. I can't have joy because I'm always there. And something happens here that is amazing. Read the rest of this passage in verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Circle, highlight, underline. Second time, because of her life being shared, they believe in him. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And Jesus stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you have said. Third time her story is mentioned. Now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the savior of the world. The townspeople, because she's able to share her past, she has a present, she has a place in the harvest. She can tell people, this is who I am. This is what I've done. Well, how can you be so open with that? I met a man that knows everything about me. I met the Christ. He knows it, he's open with it. He didn't just forgive it, but he gave me freedom from it. So now I can share it. You see, it's no longer what I'm trying to avoid. It's no longer a weapon of guilt and shame. Now it is God's most powerful tool that three times her story is mentioned 
And when she goes to town, she doesn't bring out food, she brings out friends. And they mentioned, because we heard your story and because we heard your testimony. But because of that, I met him myself. And now I've been redeemed. Now I have this. See, when it comes to our past, we try to bury it. But you can't bury something that's alive. Remember the old horror movies where you bury something and it comes crawling out of the dirt? Your past will always come crawling out after you. It just will. Again, I don't know if that's satanic. I don't know if it's demonic. I don't know if it's evil. I don't know if it's the broken world we live in. I don't know if it's the fall of page three and sin, my own sin nature, my own brokenness. All I know is my past loves to be used against me to bring me guilt and shame. Oh, you're gonna teach today? Oh, you're gonna preach? Remember who you were? Remember what you did? Remember who you did? Remember where you were? And I'm like, yep, 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 yep. And I'm done. I'm done. Or you can have something with Christ that allows you to be the first to share it. It doesn't control you. You control it. It doesn't own you. You own it. You can't bury it. We tend to blame others or we tend to blame ourselves. You can blame people for what's been done to you or what you've done. You can blame an ex, an old partner. You can blame a parent, a dad. You can blame a family. But it doesn't do anything for the guilt and shame you have. You just have a blame game going on. It does nothing about the source of shame in your life. You know, the U.S. actually has a conscience fund to try to help people with this. Seriously, the United States has what's called the Conscience Fund. It's one of three gift funds maintained by the United States Department of the Treasury. It's used for voluntary contributions from people who have stolen or defrauded the United States government. The fund was created back in 1811. It received $5 during its first year, but over the years, it's received over $6 million of people feeling guilty, so they send money into the United States Department of Treasury. Donations given to the Conscience Fund vary in size. Someone once sent in nine cents, leaving a note saying that they had reused a three cent stamp three different times. Another donor sent a handmade quilt in an effort to settle her tax bill. Most gifts to the Conscience Fund are from anonymous donors. Others are forwarded by pastors who have received deathbed confessions. And before people die, they wanna make something right. Even when the largest donation was made in 1990 in the amount of $155,502, the Treasury Department accepted the money without question and investigation. People have donated because they've stolen supplies while in the military, withheld payments to the IRS, or just found cash laying on the streets, all because the thought of keeping this money burned a hole in their conscience. Notes sent in with donations go like this. This check is for $1,300, is to make restitution of the tools, the leave days, and other things I stole while I was in the U.S. Navy from 1962 to 1967. Another person wrote, Dear IRS, I've not been able to sleep at night because I've been cheating on my income taxes. Enclosed, please find a cashier's check for $1,000. If I still can't sleep after this, I'll send you the rest of the money I owe. (laughs) Isn't that good? I'm not going to send you all of it. I just got to sleep with a good conscience. Let me ask you, how do you do it? How do you get rid of your guilt? How do you get rid of your shame? That's right, you can't. You can't. But she did. The very thing she was hiding from at the beginning of the passage is the very thing three times at the end she tells and is told about her. The very thing she's hiding from the public from 
is the very thing she tells the public about. Her greatest fear is to be known and exposed. She now goes and exposes what used to be her greatest fear. What in the world happened at this well? It's exactly what Jesus is trying to get at. I'm tired of you trying to have your weekends, your church, your spiritual, your worship moments without the truth about you because your spiritual life can't last unless I have the truth about you because the moment your service is over, your church is over, you're going to go back to you and your guilt and shame is going to run rampant. So, so here's how we lay this thing out then to close it all down. We got to defeat guilt and shame. <laughs> my, one of my favorite all-time verses in the Bible is 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from the unrighteousness. Do you realize our American churches do an amazing job talking about forgiveness? We tend to do a lousy job talking about freedom. Let me ask you a question. You're going to have to play at home. You're going to have to raise your own hands. Come on, let's all do this. How many of you believe that if I ask Jesus to forgive me for something I've done in my past, how many of you believe that he will forgive you? All right, especially if you're watching with people, this is an easier game to play because you can look. For those of you that raised your hands only, continue on to number two. How many of you have asked forgiveness more than once for the exact same event in your past? Raise your hand. Look at the hypocrites. Look at the hypocrites. What's wrong with us? We believe if I ask forgiveness, I'm forgiven, but I have to go back and keep asking and keep asking and keep asking. Can I say something that maybe you haven't heard a pastor say before? Can you please stop praying for forgiveness? Stop. I think God is tired of hearing your prayer forgiveness. He's like, my Lord, I crucified my son once. I forgave you. It's not forgiveness that you need. It's and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You need to deal with your guilt and shame. You need to find freedom from the cross, not forgiveness. Uh, let me break it down this way. The battle is fought between two truths. Circle, highlight, underline truth. Circle, highlight, underline truth. There's two truths about you. The truth about how I see myself and the truth about how God sees me. There's two truths. There's a truth about how I see myself, who I am, what I've done, what's been done to me, and the truth about how God sees me. There's two truths about you. And that's why this battle is real and it's hard. Because what you're struggling with, your guilt and shame comes from truth. Yeah, the Bible says Satan is a liar. It says he's the great deceiver. But Satan doesn't lie about me. Satan lies about the truth about me. Do you understand that? Satan's never come and go, Chris, remember that time with those prostitutes and that cocaine and you guys all got together and I'm like, oh, what a wretched man. Oh, wait a second. I've never done cocaine. I've never had prostitutes. And he's like, oh, I almost got you. That's dumb. See, Satan doesn't need to lie about me. You know why? Because I've given him 52 years about me. He don't need to lie. He just needs to point out 92, 93, 1990, 91. How about 87 to 92? That's probably a better just ballpark of rounding. See, he can just bring up years, nights, names, people, faces. 
He doesn't need to lie about me. I've armed him. Again, my past is his greatest weapon against me. The moment I try to walk with God spiritually, what does he shoot at me? The truth. And that's why Jesus says, I got to have both in your life. Otherwise, your truth about you is going to bring you guilt and shame. And he goes, I want to expose that truth about you. (laughs) It's a battle of two truths. And we can only walk in one of those truths. We can only walk in one of those truths. You can't walk in both. I know who I am. I know I'm a sinner. I know I deserve death. I know I've done despicable things. I know I've been dishonoring. I know I've been cheating. I know I've been involved in so much sexual junk. I know my ego. I know my pride. I know who I hurt. I know the words I've said. I know the things I've watched. I know the places I've been. Oh my gosh, do I know the truth about me. And this book says... So you ready to worship me spiritually? And I go, oh, yeah, I'm broken. I need help. And he goes, well, let's talk about one, two, three, four, five, six. I go, why do we got to go there? He goes, because I want you to know that I know the truth about you. And I want you to know that I know we're good. So it never haunts you again. In fact, it can be my most powerful tool for you, Chris. Oh, I tell you, when we finally got a decision about 19 years ago about coming to North Coast, I realized, you know how close that is to Fallbrook? (gasps) Some of my greatest guilt and shame happened in Fallbrook. What if I run into people? What if I, but at that time in my life, I was already ready for it. I hadn't always been there. My first five years as a youth pastor, I had cardboard boxes unfolded flat into a little closet space in my youth pastor's office up in Pomona, East LA County. Because I thought for sure one day, somebody was gonna drive up from Fallbrook, they're gonna find out I'm a youth pastor, they're gonna meet with the senior pastor and the leadership team, they're gonna expose who I was and what I did. And when I found out that meeting was happening, I would unfold those cardboard boxes, put everything I could into it, pack my car, and leave tire tracks getting out of there. I'm a youth pastor. I'm not just a guy trying to go to church. I'm teaching kids forgiveness. And I'm scared to death people are going to find out about me. And the rug's going to be pulled out from under me. And this whole charade and facade I'm doing is over. Oh, I was trying to worship God so hard spiritually. And I never brought the truth about me. He knows it. He wants it. He goes, Chris, this doesn't work without this. And you can only walk in one of the truths. This is going to frustrate some of you. It may hurt some of you. But your guilt and shame that you feel, it's your choice. Listen to me. Oh, I'm trying to say that with all the compassion in the world because I was there. It's your choice to hold on to it. Since the cross and the empty tomb, you don't have to walk in guilt and shame. You can choose to walk in freedom. It is a choice now. It's not an emotion. It's not just effects of what I've done. It's not just consequences of my past. Guilt and shame are choices now. I choose to walk in them. And she makes a choice. I'm gonna try to be religious. Well, you have a church you worship at. We have a church. He goes, I'm not not talking about religion. I'm talking about your life. Are you ready to give me the truth about you. Well, God already knows it. Why do I have to say anything? Because you're the one holding on to it. What is it in your home? What is it in your church? What is it that if people found out about you, you would never come back again? 
If there's something in your life like that, then it owns you. You don't own it. If there's something in your life like that, then you don't have freedom from it. You're bondage to it. There's an incredible story of a guy named Brownlow North. Brownlow North in the late 1800s was a great evangelist and preacher in Great Britain. But for the first 40 years of his life, he lived a very self-indulgent worldly existence. He was not a good man at all. But coming down ill, thinking he was going to die, he had a deathbed moment where he reached out to God. And when he became better, he didn't forget that moment. He gave his life to Christ. And he became an evangelist and a preacher. He was asked to speak at Aberdeen Chapel. And on his way into the chapel, there was a great procession. They moved him down to the front row. He sat there. And as he's sitting in that front row, waiting for the church to start, a little envelope was dropped on his shoulder and fell into his lap. And he opened the letter. And the letter said, Brownlow, I know exactly who you are and I know the life that you've lived. And it gave three instances of dates and situations of some of his most heinous acts. If you dare stand in my church today, from the back, I will expose you for who you are. And as the first two worship songs played on, he had a decision to make. And when the third one ended, Brownlow walked up on the pulpit, opened the book of Timothy and said, the words that Jesus Christ have come to save sinners of whom I am chief and the most wretched. And after that verse, he looked at the man standing in the back. He goes, I've just been handed a letter. Let me read it to you. And he read his atrocities and said, every one of these are true. In fact, there's so much more that could be written about me. And today I want to tell you about the Christ I found that has made me a new man. I heard that story my fifth year into being a youth pastor about 28 years ago. And I realized I couldn't do that. There are things in my life that if you put them on the screen in church, I would move to a different state and fear anyone that saw those would bump into me again. I didn't have freedom. I'd been asking forgiveness over and over and over and over for the same night, for the same relationships, for the same things. I didn't have freedom. And it took me down into verses like Romans 5, 8 on. But God demonstrated his own love for us that why we were sinners, Christ died for us. Yeah, yeah, I know I'm a sinner. I know Christ died for me. He goes, however, if we've been saved through his death, how much more shall we be saved through his life? If we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more now being reconciled shall we be saved through his life? Five times in Romans 5, it says, how much more, how much more, how much more, how much more? Do you realize no one ever told me, Chris, if you were forgiven by Jesus on the cross spiritually, how much more are you saved because of his life? No one ever told me that. How much more do you have freedom now that you're forgiven through his life? And no one ever told me how much more. I went back and I saw the woman at the well. Spoiler alert. The end of this book in chapter 21, he does the same thing with Peter. Peter curses, he knows Christ. Peter denies he has anything to do with Christ. And the last time Jesus, after a risen tomb, after Easter walks with Peter, he asked Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Why is he asking the same question? 
because Peter had denied him, denied him, denied him. It's Jesus's way of saying, you need to know that I know the truth about you. I know it, I know it, I know it, and we're good. Never get up and preach and wonder if someone was there. Never get up and start witnessing and wonder, man, does someone know what I did that night? In fact, it's from Peter's memoirs in the book of Mark that we get the full story of what he did that night. It's a woman at the well that says, I want living water. Spiritually, I want to be quenched. And Jesus goes, not a chance. It's going to last only Sunday. And you're going to live Sunday to Sunday. I want Monday through Saturday. I want the truth about you. I know it. 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 And I want you to know that I know it. And you are loved and you are accepted. And you have an invitation to success and celebration. And it is your life. It is your past that's going to become my greatest tool. And it used to be the greatest weapon against you. We get to choose guilt or grace. We get to choose guilt or grace. Oh, church, let me tell you. In the kingdom of God, failure is never, ever a person. It is simply an event. And it's one that the cross forgave and his risen life frees us from. Well, great story. What am I supposed to do? Well, you have to have your moment at the well. You have to take those things that are giving you shame, what you've done, what's been done to you, your past, and you need to expose him just like he wanted to expose it with the woman in the well, just like he needed to expose it with Peter. You need to sit and say, God, thank you for these. Not that they happened. Thank you. Not that it was done to you. Thank you. Not that I did it. But God, thank you for this truth about me that in spite of that, here's how you see me. God, thank you that these acts I've done and committed or God, these acts that were done against me, thank you that in spite of that guilt, in spite of that shame, this is how you see me. I am what you had to do. I am what you had to go through. I am why you had to do the cross. I am why you had to finish your work because you knew I couldn't worship you spiritually. It only lasts for a service. You had to do something with the truth about me and your cross forgave me and your life frees me. Now church, listen, this is usually not a one-time choice. It's not. TJ gave a great illustration about our friend Brock, whose appendix burst. Sorry, Brock, you're getting used two weeks in a row. And the doctor had to go in and pull out all his organs and clean it. I promise you, from that moment on, he wasn't scot-free. There's medications that he's on for a while. There's antibiotics that you're taking. You got to wean yourself off of that. Guilt and shame usually works that way. For me, once I read it, I realized it. Once I got Romans 5, 8, 9, and 10, I realized I've only come to the cross for forgiveness. I've never come to his life for freedom. I've never seen his truth about me. And I realized I had to do that. And it wasn't a one-time prayer. I find myself daily saying, God, thank you that in spite of 87 to 93, God, thank you that in spite of what I've done and who I was, that I am loved that this is what you died for, that I am called a son and I am given a purpose in your kingdom. And I had to do that prayer daily. I kept it short, but daily. Some time went on and I realized, you know what? I was only doing it weekly. I was usually doing it ironically when I was trying to worship God spiritually. 
when I would start to worship God and goes, oh, really, do you know who you are? And I'm like, yes, I do. And because of who I am and what he did, I'm raising my hands even higher. And I don't know if it's Satan. I don't know if it's demonic. I don't know if it's sin. I don't know if it's brokenness, but all the same, same, same thing. When my past is being used against me and I'm taking it to worship God, guess what? He stops firing those darts. He's got to find a new weapon. Now, stupid Chris, I'm going to arm Satan almost on a daily basis. So this is going to become something that I've just got to work out with the life of Christ. But I tell you what, I start raising my hands a little higher. I grab those thoughts. I grab the past. I grab my brokenness, my home life and what I've done. And I say, God, thank you that in spite of that, this is how you see me. And this is what you offer me. And then I found out over a period of time, I wasn't saying that prayer weekly anymore. I only had to say it monthly every now and then. And then I found out over a period of time that I had a youth group meeting where I just sat with my students and said, here's what you need to know about your youth pastor. Here's the type of person I am, what I'm capable of and what I've done. Come meet a man who was no mere man. Who's made me look at solitary water jugs differently thatched roof where brokenness was cut and dropped in differently, fish and bread differently, burning coals by the seashore differently. Come meet a man who took this Chris and has allowed him to be this Chris today. They're both true. I get to walk in guilt or I can choose to walk in grace. I can walk in shame or I can choose to walk in the spirit. Since the cross, their choices they're not mandatory. This has been one of the longest messages we've done online. Because if you haven't figured it out by now, this is my life message. This is why I do what I do today. I can't get enough of sharing with people freedom. Freedom. Because I know what shame feels like. I know what it feels like when you hate when you're alone because you hate who you're with when you're alone. I know what it feels like to try to worship God spiritually only to have your past remind you who you really are and you can't outrun it because wherever you go, you are there. It's the truth about you. And God said, Chris, let me give you a greater truth. You get to walk in one. Forgiveness was done. Stop praying to me for your forgiveness. Choose daily to accept how I see you. This is what I had to do. And my bet is, over the course of time, you're not gonna bring back food. You're gonna bring back friends. Because your life has something to share. Oh, what a story. What a story. Father, may we be people that come to your word, not to see what you did, but who you are. You are the redeemer, you are the forgiver, and you are the giver of freedom. God, may we now have our moment with you to expose everything that we feel guilt and shame about. And God, if it's cleared and done in one prayer, thank you for that grace and mercy. But for many of us, may we hold on to daily walking with that prayer until God, it just invades every pore of our body that there is a new truth about us and your truth is a greater truth. It is a higher truth than what our past says about us. That is why the cross is necessary. May we choose freedom. Thank you for saving us through your death on the cross. But how much more 
are we supposed to be saved through your life? May we taste the freedom of how much more that you not only love us, you really, really like us and you know everything about us and you want that truth so we can truly worship you spiritually. Thanks. Thank you for us being what you had to do. (laughs) In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us for today's message. We look forward to having you back next week.